Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. I'm Danielle Parzanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts. We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success. Welcome to the show. I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one-on-one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach, um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable, take back control, and optimize your health and fitness, even during this, this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific needs are, we've got you covered. For more information, go ahead and contact me directly. My info will be in the description. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Don't Break a Leg podcast. Today, we are joined by Christina Myers. Christina graduated from Sanford University in 2012 with a bachelor's degree in sports nutrition and medicine. She spent one year in a graduate program for rehabilitation science before beginning her non-traditional journey to a strength and conditioning career. She will graduate with a master's degree in applied exercise science with a concentration in strength and conditioning this summer. Additionally, she has obtained several related certifications, including the CSCS and PES. She is a nationally acclaimed competitive powerlifter herself as well as the strength coach for two main sports of powerlifting and gymnastics. She also works with young female athletes in other sports and power sports. Christina spent half of her life in competitive gymnastics and has been coaching competitively in Alabama for the past eight years. So, Christina, welcome onto the podcast. Thank you. And, of course, we're joined by Jake as well. Hi, guys. So today we're going to be talking about gymnastics, which we have not touched on in any podcast previously. So Christina, do you mind giving us a little bit of insight into how you got involved into the gymnastics world? So I actually started in preschool. Um, we had one of those instructors that came to the school and did like little lessons for everybody. And I really liked it. And so she kind of noticed that I picked it up quickly and she went to my parents and told them that I should come to the real gym. So then I got to get on a bus every however many days of the week and they would take us to the gym and bring us back when it was over. And then it just kind of went from there where I ended up going on into it competitively after that. And so that's my first love. (laughs) It kind of took over my life. And as much as I love powerlifting and I plan to do it until I literally cannot lift anymore, I think gymnastics will always be that one like special thing that I never stop missing. Now, what is, for people that may not know, competitive gymnastics, what constitutes competitive gymnastics? 
So um, you have teams and club level gymnastics. And so there's a thing called the junior Olympic program, which is what most people think of, or they think of the levels of gymnastics. And you hear about level 10 and elite a lot, because those are the girls that go on to do NCAA gymnastics, or they go to the Olympics or try to go to the Olympics. Um, but it starts all the way down in the, the, the bottom of that number system with level one. And a lot of gyms don't compete level one. That's like forward rolls on floor. It's very, very basic. Um, a lot of places will start competing level three and level four, which is like a round off back handspring on floor, um, that kind of thing. It's where they jump to the high bar for the first time. So that's kind of the beginning of where kids start competing and they go to somewhere between six and 10 meets in a season. And depending on what level of gymnastics you're in, you either compete in fall or in spring. And so the levels that I coach is some of the higher level girls. Um, I coach Excel right now, but I've coached JO before um, in the past. And so my girls are somewhere between like level seven, eight, sometimes level nine skills is what I do the majority of my time. And from a competitive standpoint, the events that they're doing are like vault, beam, uneven yes. bars. They do four events, vault, uneven bars, beam, and floor. And at the club level of gymnastics, you compete all four events. So you sometimes see people in college or at the elite level that specialize. You can't actually do that until you get to that level. So you've got to do everything on your way up. And then now this is now men's competitive gymnastics is they have different events. Yes, they have more events. Um, they, they don't do uneven bars. They have parallel bars and they have high bar. Um, and they have rings and pommel horse. They don't do beam. And so they, they still have vault and they still have floor, and those are pretty similar. Um, but the other four events are totally different. So they have six total. But you predominantly work with female athletes. Yes. I have only ever coached women. We had a men's team where I did gymnastics growing up, but the gym that I coach at doesn't have a men's team at all. Now, is that is that common for gymnastics gyms? Do you usually specialize in like one like either female gymnastics or male gymnastics? Um, in the U.S., it's more common to just have women because men's gymnastics is not as popular here now as it has been in the past. And that is mostly due to the fact that the women's artistic gymnastics program here in the last like decade or so has just been incredibly dominant. And so, you know, the Olympics roll around every however many years and, and college gymnasts are going viral on social media and all of that stuff. And so people only ever see the women. And so young girls get into it. And I will say it's um, as right or wrong as it may be, it is a more socially acceptable sport for girls than it is for guys these days. Kind of like cheerleading, it's still, you know, predominantly female, even though there are some guys that do it. It's just not as common or as popular. I think that's the biggest reason that there's not as many male gymnasts these days. But there are a lot of areas of the country and colleges, especially that have only men's gymnastics and no women's, or their men's program is much more dominant and well-known than their women's program is. So it just kind of depends on where you are. So how, how was your like relationship with gymnastics? You obviously started when you were young. How far did you go through? I went up to level nine, which level nine, the, the skills that they have, that they compete these days are like 
well advanced from what we did when I was in level nine, but that's where I got to. And I did not finish that season. That's kind of, I had an injury that ended up, I mean, that was kind of it for me. I didn't get to finish out my career the way I would have wanted to, but it started off really positive. Like I loved it as a kid. Um, and when I got asked to stop doing all my other sports and just do gymnastics, like I didn't think twice about it. It was what I was going to have to do. I thought, um, that it was the only way to get to what I wanted to do. And I loved it enough that I was fine with that. You know, as a kid, you don't really think about like, am I going to miss high school dances or am I going to ever get to go to football games because you don't know any better yet. So I loved it when I was younger and I still loved it going into high school, but I will say as you get older and your brain develops more and you start thinking gymnastics suddenly becomes um, a little scarier. Like you realize what you're doing that you've been doing all these years and you're like, man, am I crazy? Like I could die. <laughs> so I, say I, I loved it all the way through and I obviously still do. That's why I came back to it and coaching it. But there was definitely my last couple of years, there was, it felt like there was more negative than positive at the time. And then having like a injury that I couldn't really just like get over in a couple of weeks made it to where when I left the sport, I had a lot of really negative feelings for it. And it wasn't until I came back to coach that I kind of got over that and started to love it again. Could you maybe touch on what the training and like intensity is like for a young gymnast? I think some of our listeners might not be familiar with what it's like, you know, like starting at the age of six through 18, what their training intensity looks like. It kind of depends on what your goals are and what level you, um, want to and have the potential to achieve what you're going to end up doing from age six on. So you can't really start competing before you're about six years old anyway. So some gyms will have like an accelerated program. So even though they're technically recreational level gymnasts, they will come a few extra days a week or something like that. And they'll be working on some of the things they need to compete at the higher level so that once they are able to compete, they can kind of like move them forward really quickly and get them to higher level skills younger, which the thought process behind that is they have to get them there in order for them to make it to the elite level in time to beat their peak, which is not entirely true, but that's a whole different topic. But they'll start um, off with probably six hours of practice a week, which is not crazy. It's kind of a lot for a six-year-old, but you know, it's, it's in line with their age and years, which is kind of a good recommendation of how much you could be doing. Um, but they will end up moving quickly past that. And oftentimes their training hours will double almost immediately with no real ramp up. And they'll go from six hours to 12 hours, you know, and then they go from 12 to 20 or 24 and they start doing two a days. And that's when they start getting into, are they going to be homeschooled or are they going to still go to regular school? And if they go to regular school, will that hurt their chances of actually making it, you know, to these levels that they're trying to get to? Um, and I'd say a lot of it is how can we get them to these really high level skills really young? And they want to do it before they get scared. Because like I said, you, I mean, as a kid, you're a little more fearless than you are when you're, you start to realize what it is that you're doing. So before they get that fear factor and also while they're still small, which makes it easier for coaches to help them learn skills. It's easier to spot. Um, they have less weight to move. 
It also means they're physically not mature. So you have certain injuries that they're really susceptible to trying to do those things at that age. And then um, at some point they're going to go through puberty. It might be delayed, but it's going to happen eventually and they're going to grow. And so, you know, then you have to relearn these skills. Now you're trying to do them while you're going through all these changes. And so you have a whole new set of injuries that you might have um, be susceptible to. Uh, and so I would say it's, it's really intense and it starts really young. Like you've got middle schoolers who are thinking about college scholarships and if they're going to go pro or if they're going to not take the money so they can go to the college gymnastics and just a lot of things that most other sports don't have to think about so young. So I'd say it's, it's very intense and it's very, it, they started it very young. So you'd mentioned peak age. What is peak age for a gymnast? Do you want my opinion or do you want what most people think? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so if you were to ask the average gymnastics coach, they would probably tell you at 16 or between 16 and 18. But I have the opinion and I think that their research and if we look at other sports would support me in this. Um, the peak age in gymnastics is not 16 to 18. We made it 16 to 18. So they are rushing these kids through these things and their bodies just can't do anymore at that point. And they don't have oftentimes the strength foundation to be able to continue to build on what they've done. So they're just kind of, they hit a peak and they're going to plateau and then they're going to start breaking down. Whereas if they had gone a little bit slower um, and not specialized so early and taken more time and waited a little longer to learn certain like um, riskier skills or skills that have like higher impacts and can have longer term implications when they're learned too young, that I think that we would start seeing that gymnasts could actually compete for a lot longer um, and stay mostly healthy. And if you look at certain examples, you'll see that. Like, um, I'll give you two just off the top of my head. There is an Olympian who I don't think she's going to compete in 2021, but she did compete in 2016. She's in her 40s, and she is still doing Olympic-level gymnastics. Um, if you look up Chuso, that's who you would see for that one. And then Simone Biles. She's adopted, and she moved around a lot of the kids. So she didn't specialize early, and she has ADD, so they actually didn't love her at first. They were like, oh, she's talented, but she'll never focus enough. She's not going to be this Olympic-level gymnast. Everyone knows who Simone Biles is now. Like, she is quite literally the greatest gymnast we've ever seen, and she's older. And um, she has continued to improve she blew everyone out of the water in the 2016 Olympics and she waited, she took two years off and she came back and she's better. You know, like she is now 23, I think. So she's five years older than the peak and she has continued to get better and better. And I guess she'll now be 24 at the Olympics now that it's been postponed until 2021. And I do think she'll be done after that. She's hinted that she's ready to retire, but if everyone had taken that same path and just slowed down a little bit longer, I think we would have a lot more people who are competing longer and, you know, staying healthy longer. And we have girls like um, Michaela Skinner who competed in college. She was at Utah. She did three years of NCAA gymnastics. So she was then introduced into a, a real strength and conditioning program. And she has deferred her senior year to go back to elite gymnastics and try and make the Olympic team because she 
wasn't um she didn't quite make it in 2016. So she is, you know, she's I think she's like a year older than Simone and she's fine. She's also improving and getting all these new skills that she didn't have before and she's getting better. So the peak age is not really 16 to 18 like people think it is, unless you make it that. Unless you push kids to their breaking point and that's just all they can handle. So why why do we see that kind of like cultural identity of gymnastics focus on doing everything so young? Is it just because of like, because you had mentioned some stuff before, obviously like the individuals that you work with are smaller, they're easier to spot. You try and teach them stuff before they're afraid. Um, but are there other reasons for like why we try and try and just force everything up front? That's part of it. Um, and if you ask most people, you'll get an answer somewhere along those lines. But the culture that made the U.S. such a dominant force in gymnastics of, under the Carolis, Marta and Bella, um, and all of the people that were kind of in that generation of gymnastics, that's what they pushed for. You know, they pushed for these really young girls, for these really tiny girls. Um, they looked for like certain body types and they were the that's what everyone aspired to be able to coach at that level or to be on their teams. And so that's what the coaches started looking for. But that culture thing just kind of became what was expected and what was accepted as the norm. And now that they are retired and out of it, we're kind of seeing that some of these people that were never like good enough, um, I'm using air quotes here, by that standard have actually gone on to succeed later on, um, there are girls on NCAA teams that were passed over for national team spots and these things because they were too tall or they were too this. And they had incredibly successful college careers and can continued to get better because when they got to the NCAA, they were able to kind of let go of some of those um, like preconceived ideas of what gymnastics was supposed to be like. And they got to, you know, open up a little bit and have fun. And it was okay if they were taller and it was okay if they gained a little bit of like healthy weight, you know, because they really weren't eating enough before. And they, they started doing real strength training, you know, they got stronger finally. So they just really excelled instead of kind of being held back by what the cultural expectation was. It was like, a, it's very, um, or was very pigeonholed into a certain group of people were the only ones that could possibly be successful. And I had a little bit of that because I'm taller. I'm, I'm under five, six, but that is incredibly tall for gymnastics. Um, or was always said to be incredibly tall for gymnastics. There are um, Olympic champions and NCAA like national champions that are taller than that now. And they were, they did great but they didn't always get a chance to do so at a younger age because they like didn't fit that specific look and build that they were going for. It's just really interesting. Cause I feel like if we look at other sports that are really popular in America, right? Like football, basketball, baseball. I mean, yeah, there are some people that have gone professional, like out of high school. Um, I think the NBA had like has changed that maybe recently. I think now you have to have one year of college play before you can go. You can't go straight out of high school like LeBron and Carmelo did. Um, in football, I believe it's usually two to – I think it's three years before you're eligible for the draft. But it's just so interesting like because, you you know, you see professional athletes that are in their early 20s in those sports. But then in gymnastics, we're talking about like 14 to 16-year-old girls. 
and that just from like a developmental standpoint and like the pressures of a middle school girl, like thinking about, you know, am I going to make it to the Olympics? Am I going to have a college scholarship? Like that's insane. And I think some of the, the things that came about in those other sports that they started making those rules where you had to wait a certain amount of time. I think we have just gotten to that period in gymnastics, like everything that came out with um, Larry Nasser and everything surrounding that and the Carolis finally stepping down. I think we have just gotten to that point where we're going to finally start to see some cultural changes and some things change to benefit um, not just how the USA competes on the national level, but how the gymnasts fare after they leave gymnastics. I think we're going to start to finally see some of those changes. Um, people like me who grew up in that culture, but came back to gymnastics to coach now, like we were like, wow, that was like, we see, we didn't see it then when we were doing it, you know, but now that you're out of it and you're like, oh, that was kind of messed up. Like this shouldn't, it shouldn't be like that. So a lot of those people are coming back into the sport and speaking out or just trying to do things differently and do them better now. And so I think we've finally hit that point where things are going to change for the better, but there's still a lot of pushback. Like people who have been coaching for a long time and have always done things a certain way are not always um, open to new changes and to new ideas. And so that is, I think it's still going to take us a lot of time, you know, but I think we're on the, the beginning of that starting to change. So that'll be good. And you're certainly part of that um, movement because your background in, in lifting and strength and conditioning. And we to, before we hit record, we talked a little bit with you about kind of your role in melding those two worlds. Can you speak on that as your role as a, a strength and conditioning coach for gymnasts as well as like a head coach? I think um, I have a unique position that I tr try my best to use. Um in a positive manner. And it can be hard sometimes as I just want to like, you know, I've been watching this for the last eight years or really even longer than that going, man, I wish I could change this stuff. And so sometimes when people ask me, I'm like, you know, I just say all of this stuff and they're like, what? <laughs> um, and so I can have a hard time communicating it sometimes, but I have the benefit of having been a gymnast, being a gymnastics coach and being an expert or a strength and conditioning professional so I'm not really from the outside, if that makes sense. I'm already kind of on the inside. And so people are like, well, she does know the sport. Because usually what you get when you have people from the outside trying to come in and help is that, well, you don't know my sport. Like you can't possibly help with gymnastics because you didn't, you don't know it. I mean, you're not part of this community. Um, and so I think what I've been trying to do and what a lot of other people who have come before me, Dave Tilly of Shift Movement Science is a great great resource for gymnastics and dancers and all of those kind of people um, is just to try and gently like prod people into the right direction. Like we've got to start doing more strength training. It's going to help with certain things. And you, you have to kind of find what is going to most appeal to the people you're talking to. So if you've got coaches with injury problems in their gym, if you can get in and, help them see how implementing a good strength and conditioning program is going to bring their injury rates down and keep their gymnasts healthier. Um, that's a good way to kind of get your foot in the door. And then, you know, you kind of keep building on it from there. You give them little tidbits and it's tricky because they're not always going to like what you have to say because it goes against what they've always thought. Um, 
But anytime that you can just kind of give them a little something to implement and improve, um, I think it goes a long way because they do it and they see, oh, it's making a difference. And then they're willing to come back and ask you for something else. Um, so I think it's kind of a tricky position to be in because you have to keep proving yourself, even though if you were to go talk to a strength and conditioning professional, they're like, yeah, of course that's right. You know, so it's kind of like, even though you know you're right and you know the research supports you and that the rest of the profession supports you trying to get it presented in a way that is going to be acceptable by the people that you actually need to listen to you is really a tricky thing. And within my gym, I'm really lucky. Like the girls that I work with, they are all about it. Like they actually enjoy it. They buy in. Um, some of them play other sports because a particular group that I work with is allowed to. They do. Um, they're not super, super specialized where they're going to try and get that college scholarship. So if they want to play two sports, they can. And so they're like, well, this is helping my pole vault too. So like, I definitely want to keep doing it. So I'm lucky in that the kids I work with and the particular parents of my group are like all about it. Um, and they know that I know gymnastics and they know that I know strength and conditioning. So they listen, but that's, I'd say the biggest challenge of it is trying to get into that position where you can help people. It's like at the end of the day, all I want to do is help. But sometimes I get pushed back against instead of, you know, people don't see it as a help. They see it as like somebody trying to change things and they don't want that. Can you speak a little bit more to maybe the advice that you would give a clinician, whether it was an athletic trainer or a physical therapist on how they can prove their worth to gymnastic coaches? I know we spoke about it before, but as a physical therapist who only did gymnastics for five years and I could not do a skill if they asked me to. And they know that I think they don't buy into me like some of my dancers or dance instructors have. So what advice would you give to those people? That's a tricky one. And I think, um, like you said, the clinicians have a hard time as well because of the culture of the sport and what it's always been is it's kind of that you don't take advice from doctors and medical professionals because they're going to tell you to stop doing your sport, or that's what the fear is, at least. I know most good physical therapists are not going to tell you to stop. They're going to help you find a way to do your sport better um, and to kind of fill in the gaps so that you are able to continue forward with less problems in the future. So I think probably the best way to kind of get your foot in the door is to help people see that you're not going to just sit them on the sidelines. No gymnast wants to be sidelined. No coach wants their kid sidelined. And I, obviously in certain cases, there's no choice. You have to rest. But finding ways for them to continue to work and finding ways for them to know that you're on their side and you are trying to help them do their sport better, I think is probably the best way that you can um, get through to them. And if you can present your rehab exercises and whatever your, your treatments with them as something that helps their gymnastics and helps them get better and learn the words for the skills or just different things, ask them about what they're doing and see if you can relate to them on some level. Because sometimes even if you didn't do gymnastics for very long, but you did dance, you know, the leaps and the turns that they're doing, you know, something, even if you don't realize, you know, a whole lot about it. And so I think if you can just relate to them with one or two things, they'll open up and let you in a little bit more. I think it's inherently more challenging for me as someone who did neither dance nor gymnastics. Um, I just pretend to be an expert on the internet. So 
there's that. But I heard you um, on the very first episode where you talked about how you use the real words from the sport or from the from dance with them, and that's what makes them go, oh, they do know what I'm, what they're talking about. So, I think that's like the perfect approach. Yeah, I that we we just talked about Rose with that earlier today about the performing arts program that I went through at Shenandoah. And it's like a six week long learn French course on how how to ballet. So that one was, and there's still a lot of terms that I don't understand, but I think one of the things that you'd mentioned, Christina was like, you know, trying to build those lines of communication. And even if it's something that you don't understand, like ask them about it. Um, One of the things that I've found, at least with the dance and with some of the gymnasts that I've worked with too, is like most people have uh, recordings of stuff that they're doing. If it's like a little piece of choreography that they're doing or they have like clips from training, you know, like on a vault that they messed up. Um, they're always willing to like show you and talk about it and break stuff down. And I think that's really, really helpful. And especially when you can get out of this realm of like, I feel, I feel like it's very easy as a healthcare provider or strength and conditioning specialist to, to think of yourself like on a podium, right? Or it's very easy for patients or clients that we work with to put us on a podium, if, even if we're not trying to be there. But the reality is if you can kind of bring that back down and you're always on that same space and connecting with someone and you learn just as much from them as they learn from you, I think that collaborative environment makes it much, much, much easier to, you know, help them in, especially with, with sports that you don't fully understand. And I would say the same goes on the other side. I see coaches a lot of times who will have a clinician that they love. And this happens in my local area with the the person that I work with closely and they send these girls to her and she's wonderful. So of course she can make them feel better and she can help them, you know, feel better in that moment, but then they're going to go back to practice and the coaches aren't going to take all of the advice that she's trying to give them. They're going to say, okay, do your rehab, but they're not going to change their practice habits. You know, like they don't change the number of skills these kids are doing, the number of elements and the number of repetitions, or they don't, listen to her when she says, okay, we need to change the way we go from spring to summer practice because we have girls who maybe are going from practicing five days a week. I'm just making that numbers here to go into two a days in summer. Well, that's not an increase of 10%. That's 50%. I mean, like they just doubled what they were doing. And of course things are going to start popping up. You doubled the number of things that you're doing and you could have increased it slowly and still gotten to two a day with the real, you know, a plan to ramp it up and you probably wouldn't have seen so many of these problems, but it's kind of like coaches even are falling subject to that, like quick fix, like, okay, they went to see the doctor. Now they're back. They should be better. We're going to keep going the way we were, or they're cleared to come back from injury. And instead of coming back slowly and ramping things up, it's like going straight back to where you were before you got hurt and like expecting not to get hurt again. It's like you were, you know, you can't keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting to get a different result. It's going to keep happening. You've got to be willing to change the whole picture and not just do your rehab exercises before practice and you should be fine. So that's um, one thing that can go both ways. And maybe clinicians, especially the ones like you guys who have that like CSES background as well, can maybe help with the like the load management side of things or help explain that side of things because gymnastic doesn't get it. I can tell you that from, you know, just watching what people do. They don't understand how fast things can add up and how many impacts they're really taking and that kind of thing. And 
we were talking about this, I think, before you hit record with the plyometric stuff. It's the entire sport of gymnastics is plyometric. So if you do all of this plyometric conditioning and warm up and whatever, and then you go do a whole four hour practice, like you've done so many impacts already in one practice, and you're going to come back and do that five, six, seven more times that week. And that stuff just adds up so fast. So how do you go, how do you go about managing something like that? Cause certainly, you know, we, from a rehab perspective, we would want to slowly dose someone back into plyometrics, but it just kind of seems odd that the warm-up that you're describing to go do a very much plyometric based four hour practice is just plyos. It is. And that's one of those things. I think it comes back to gymnastics coaches are trying to fill too many holes. Like they're trying to be so many things because they don't ask for outside help. And so normally if you look at a sports program at a school or a college or whatever, you're going to have the sports coaches and then there's going to be the skill coaches for certain things. And then you're going to have your strength and conditioning and then you're going to have your medical team. And like all of these people do what they're good at and you know, and they work together. And instead gymnastics is trying to, it's like one coach is trying to do all that stuff. And there's no way you can really be a jack of all trades and be an expert at all of it. And so usually what goes to the wayside is the stuff that's not gymnastics. You know, like they get real good at coaching skills and they should. And if they would focus on just that and I think let people come in to help them with the rest of it, I think they would get better results overall. But with plyos, I think that's just one of those things that trickled down from people who got to the top of the coaching world. Um, they coached all these champions and they've done these different things. And so this is what they said. This is what our conditioning looks like. This is what you should be doing. And so, you know, coaches underneath them went to these educational things and that's what they learned. And so that's what they do. And they, no one up there told them the importance of strength training. So they didn't do it and it never made it down to the bottom level. And then no one looked outside of that to say, hey, is there anything else we should be doing? So how do you broach that? Um, I guess that idea of, hey, we should probably do some other stuff. We shouldn't just do plyos. Because I think that's, and this is something that Danielle and I have talked about quite frequently on this podcast, um, is that at least in the performing arts world, it seems to be very much this mindset of, if we want to get better, we have to continue to only do the thing that we've been doing this whole time. Right. If you look at every other sport and their off season, they're like in the weight room. They're not even allowed to touch a ball for, you know, three months out of the year. And they're doing things outside of that, like technical aspect of sport to help improve their overall physical capacity, preparedness, improve things like strength, conditioning, explosiveness, power production, what have you. Whereas in like the dance world, 99% of the time, if I talk with a dancer, they're like, oh, yeah, so I need to get better at this, so I'm just going to dance more. And then you start looking at things like crazy spikes in acute activity level, and it's just kind of feeding that, you know, the beast of, like, overuse, overtraining, and, like, potentially probably, like, too early sports specialization. I would say um, we definitely have the early specialization which I've talked about earlier, that they start so young and they're told they can't do any other sports usually if they're really going to be able to make it um, to get to those highest levels. When in reality, they should continue to be cross-training and they're not. You know, they need that if it's another sport or if it's a strength and conditioning program outside of their normal practice time or just 
a time in their training, which I do this with my girls in summer. We play kickball sometimes. Like we just do a different athletic activity because they still need those athletic qualities. Um, they still need to learn to move in different ways and build certain skills that are going to help them no matter what in their gymnastics and outside of their gymnastics, like hand-eye coordination. You would be amazed at how many gymnasts that are these incredible athletes cannot catch a ball. You know, just like things that they should have learned, but they never did because they were in gymnastics and homeschooled or they were, you know, they weren't allowed to play another sport because they might get hurt or they might miss gymnastics practice or whatever it may be. And it's difficult to try and show people where they can implement these different things and um, avoid some of the issues they typically run into. I started an Instagram account, which sounds like a really tiny thing, but it just gave me a place to be able to write these things out and make infographics and that kind of stuff and explain the why. Because most of the time, if somebody asks me a question, it's like in the middle of practice and I'm in the middle of doing something and I can like give them half an answer, but I don't really get a chance to like organize my thoughts and tell them things that might be convincing, you know, if I had a good argument to give. And so I started that and it's been helpful. And then, you know, there's people like Dave Tilly that I mentioned earlier, he's got a blog and a whole Instagram and YouTube and all this different stuff. And so I think the more people that actually do know what they're doing and have these ideas, if you can present them in a gentle way, you know, you don't want to sound like you're getting on to people because the fact is most of these coaches have really good intentions. Like they are trying to make their kids the best that they can. They really do love the kids. You know, they want them to be successful, but they don't have the background in those things to see where they're going wrong. They don't understand that there's a problem because they, they don't have that knowledge to see it, if that makes sense. But they may just see, man, our kids keep getting hurt. That means we must not be doing our job of teaching the skills well enough. So we're going to do more. We're going to do more drills and more numbers and more of this stuff when really maybe the kids just aren't recovering properly because their strength and conditioning program isn't adequate or because they're practicing too much, you know, or they aren't eating enough to fuel the amount that they're practicing. So their bodies can't recover in between turns or in between routines or whatever it may be. And in reality, everything that they're trying to do to help the gymnasts get better is what is actually hurting them in the long run. So it's a tricky place to be. And I don't have the perfect answer. I'm still trying to figure out how to get it across to people. Um, on top of kind of having those resources for them, I think just knowing that I can be in that gym and be doing something a little bit different and not have some of the same problems that may be plaguing a different group. And they can say, well, what do they do different? You know, like, how are they doing the same skills, but they don't have the same problems that we have. And maybe we have different problems, you know, like that we can learn something from them. And so I think if you can kind of collaborate with the other people around you or the people that you need to get through to and say, okay, here's how I can help you. But like, I want to learn this from you. Like, I think if you can help those coaches feel like they, they do know something, you know, that they're not like dumb or that you don't think that they have ill intentions or anything like that, that you realize that you can learn something from them and that they can learn something from you and make it more of a collaborative effort. I think you'll get further with trying to um, 
help them make changes that'll help everybody out. I think that all sounds wonderful. And it's clear that you're an expert in this field. Um, and I'm just curious from someone being in the gymnastics world for so long, what are the common injuries that you've seen in your girls? And are there any strength deficits that you've seen from the strength and conditioning side that go along with those injuries? Like, can you pair them up together and almost predict what types of injuries are going to happen? I would say some of the biggest ones. So we've talked about this a couple of different times, but the plyos being like the only form of um, like lower body conditioning these kids are getting and they're not getting any true strength work. There's a lot of strength deficits. I mean, there's upper body ones too, but just if we just focus on the lower body for a second, we've never, you know, most of them have never learned proper landing mechanics to begin with. So now we take that. And we pair that with the fact that they don't necessarily train their hamstrings or not effectively train their hamstrings, and especially not with like eccentric training. Um, and all they do is this jumping. So now we have tons of impacts. We haven't learned to disperse the forces correctly. We don't have the hamstring strength to decelerate our knee actions like we're supposed to. We're landing in these positions that are you know, they're not hip dominant. So the knee and the lower back are trying to take over where the glute should be doing something and the hamstring should be doing something and they're not. And you get sievers and you get Oshkwood slaughters and you get hamstring issues coming from, you know, they've done too many of these things where they're put into extreme positions at a really young age and they've got, my brain is rocking me. You've got hamstrings trying to like tear away from the bone at the hip. You know, you get these things that you put these tiny little immature bodies through um and you do a whole lot of them and they don't have the actual like muscular strength to handle these things and to disperse those forces out in the way that they should and so the majority of the things i see they they all kind of come back to that and then in the upper body you get the you know the same thing you get the elbow you get ocd um you get a lot of shoulder issues whether it's impingements or rotator cuff issues or labral issues. Like I've seen a lot of shoulder dislocations and they usually don't happen on something scary. You know, it's not like something went bad and the shoulder comes out as a result. It's like a normal skill. And one day your body just is like, whoops, I'm done. And you know, you weren't doing anything that if you were watching it in a video, you're like, oh wow, I see what happened. They did this. And then, you know, this popped out. It's like the, you have an elite gymnast doing a back handspring and a shoulder comes out. like. That's a basic skill. It shouldn't have happened. But you get a lot of lower back, and that comes from different things. It comes from overuse in the extension patterns and maybe not learning those correctly and loading them um, where the lower back is trying to compensate for the rest of the body not doing what it's supposed to, whether it's the hip if you're you know on your feet or if it's the shoulder or the you know lack of shoulder mobility. So now the back is trying to make up for that while you're on your hands and landing in an upside down position. That's the thing I think people forget is that gymnastics is one of the only sports that takes that many impacts to their upper body. You know, so you get wrists, you get elbows, you get back problems that come from not having the right shoulder mobility because you were upside down and you keep landing and closing your shoulder angle and your back has to make up for it. So you can still complete the skill and you do a hundred of those a day you know, you just get all kinds of different things that um, you see the same stuff over and over. And you get those those big acute injuries. We get ACL tears occasionally. That's not as common, I think, as people would expect them to be. I see the occasional, like, ankle sprains. Um, 
I say ankle sprains come more from kids being too tired to continue to control their movements. You don't get a lot of them because of a skill going wrong. You get them more like the kid got tired and they'd done like 12 of those and they had done all that plyometric stuff at the beginning of practice or whatever, you know, and then they, they're just tired. It's not necessarily that the skill itself was dangerous or that it was an overuse injury. It usually comes from they should have stopped three ago and they didn't, you know? And I say in the NCAA, we see this big spike in Achilles tears. That's a huge one for NCAA gymnastics. And the more research they do into it, the more they have said it's not what they're doing at that level. They didn't suddenly do something in college that caused that. It's all of these years of microtrauma that nobody saw because your Achilles isn't visible, you know, and maybe that Severus that you had as a kid was really your Achilles already going, hey, this is too much. And we didn't um, ramp up to things correctly and we didn't learn to disperse those forces across all of those surrounding muscles like we were supposed to. It was just one thing was taking the impact by itself over and over and over and over again. So those are the ones that I see all the time. So this was interesting. I don't know if you saw Danielle type this in the chat, but she was like, uh, why do we have pitch counts for like youth athletes, but we don't have like a jump count for gymnasts? Right. And um, I've said his name a couple of times now, but Dave Tilly is working on a like measurable load management tracking system that would be kind of like your equivalent of a pitch count or something like that. But if you look in the strength and conditioning literature, even though there's not a ton, a ton of research on gymnastics, they say in most of those books on periodization and, you know, designing strength programs, they say count the elements, like count how many elements does a person do in a practice, how many literal skills and, you know, different skills. But if you counted them up, how many things did they do and keep track of that over the day, the session, the week, the month or whatever, and see like, how does that trend? And are there times where you let those kids um, deload or unload a little bit, or you bring that number down and give them a break. Um, do you ramp them up slowly or do you suddenly double it? You know, do you get to season and all of a sudden you do twice as much because that's how you get better? Or do you bring it up slowly over a couple of weeks or months leading into the season, you know, in your preseason period, like you're supposed to, and like other sports do, like you said earlier, baseball players might take time off after season and not throw a ball at all. You know, they get that kind of built-in rest period, and gymnastics tends to not do that. They tend to, like, come off of a competition and go back harder the next day because they got to fix everything they messed up on instead of taking the opposite approach and taking, like, a day of recovery and then starting to ramp it back up into the next meet. I wish we had a load management system, but I'm counting on Dave. I'm ready for it. And certainly, like, we've seen some stuff. Like, um, there is, like, the acute chronic workload ratio that yep. I think people have been using for a while. But, I mean, it's not specifically applicable to gymnastics. I think a lot of the studies on that have been more like soccer and field-based sports. But, you know, I mean, it's something. I mean, you could try to just use some arbitrary units like that and, and just try and, and get an at least give you an idea of the volume that you're you're having these individuals go through when they do stuff. That's what I – I don't use that particular system, but I – keep up with the elements and I keep up with the volume of their actual strength and conditioning program, of course, which is a lot easier to track. And I watch my kids. Like I say, okay, how are they doing? Are they, how are they looking? What is their school schedule? Like, are we in the middle of finals and I need to pull this back because their external stress is incredibly high right now. And I kind of keep those trends and I just have it like in an Excel sheet with all of their strength and conditioning program, but I watch that stuff and I go, okay, 
this particular week of training that I wanted to be this happens to coincide with basically every kid's finals week. Like I need to adjust that. Or we seem to always have a whole lot more injuries right at this time of year or this particular week or after this particular thing. What's causing that? Like, where can I go back and what can I change that will hopefully, you know, change that? Is it too much? Did we not do enough? Like, were we not prepared in some way or was it where we were getting into that range of overtraining or, and, you know, maybe not overtraining specifically, but just they needed a break where I didn't give them one. Even without having a formal, like perfectly evidence-based way of tracking things, if you just pay attention to the trends of your own, you know, the people you're working directly with, you could probably start to pick out a lot of things and a lot of patterns and work off of those and say, okay, what can I do differently that will help? Do you think that the coaches are, this is just a speculation, but the coaches are fearful to calculate how many high-impact landings that these kids are having because if they recognize the trends that, you know, increased loading causes increased injuries, which we already know, but if the evidence comes out that says it's correlated so tightly that they will have to scale back and at the elite level where they have to hit certain numbers each week, it'll really affect their competitive season. I don't know if fear is the right way that I would describe it. I think they don't know any better. Um, like I was talking about earlier about the culture change, it has just been pounded into people's heads for so long that the way to get better is to do more. Um, and those same coaches, they want the best, you know, they want their kids to be good. They want them to be successful. They want their programs to be successful and having successful kids is how you get, you know, better potential gymnast into your program to keep it growing um, and to get college people to come back and keep looking at your gym I think it's more that they don't understand the correlation or they don't know to look for it. Um, and I, like you said, you and I know, and other strength and conditioning professionals and sports that have more research done on them, they know like this load management thing is a big deal. And it's how we can predict so many of the things like injuries and when somebody's going to peak and when they're going to, you know, be ready for a certain competition. And I think, just that lack of understanding and having education in that area um, is what really holds people back. And I think if they really start to look, even without formal research being done on it, I think if they really start to look at some of the trends, like, okay, let's look at NCAA gymnastics where they are limited in their practice hours. It's less than what people do in high school, but they have added the strength and conditioning stuff in and they've, you know, they do things a little differently with how they handle their practices, those girls usually still get better. There's a lot of girls who um, improve in college. They continue to get better, get do the same skills better, or they get new skills in college that they didn't have. And that wouldn't be happening if the only answer to getting better was do more. You know, they've cut their hours and somehow they're improving. So I think if, if they're willing to look for it they can see it but they don't know to look for it if that makes sense because they don't understand what the relationship between some of those things no one ever taught them this comes back to a quote that um i stole from Derek miles and that's that everyone needs a skilled dose of heavy work and a heavy dose of skilled work i'd say that's pretty accurate i mean you 
you truly cannot get better at gymnastics without doing it. I mean, I think that goes for every sport. You've got to do gymnastics to get better at gymnastics. It's just a matter of knowing that there's more to performances and um, your ability to do things than doing gymnastics, if that makes sense. Like things like recovery and sleep and nutrition and strength training and all these other pieces of the puzzle that seem to get ignored. If I think that's where, you know, that's what we got to do. We got to make people see how that's important and why it's important and how to um, implement it. And unfortunately, some of the people who have become big names in the gymnastics community act like they're experts on the subject, but they're not. Um, there's people who sell nutrition programs that really have no business doing it. And, you know, they don't eat carbs. Like they, they say that gymnasts shouldn't have carbs. Like it's a sport that relies almost entirely on glycolysis and you don't want them to eat carbs. Of course they're going to have terrible performances, you know? Um, and then that just keeps going. And then you get into REDS and all of these other things that come with it. And, the same thing goes with some of the conditioning programs that are out there that you could buy for gymnastics. It's somebody threw a lot of fancy words together and they made you think they knew what they were doing, but they don't. And because the average gymnastics coach doesn't have that background that like I have, or you have, they don't see the problems. Like I would look at that program and go, that word doesn't mean that. Like, why did they even use it there? Like they say max strength and they're doing sets of 20, like, that's not what max strength is, but the, the regular gymnastics coach doesn't know that they don't see it and they don't go, Hey, that's a red flag. They're just like, okay, we got to do sets of 20 to get stronger. Not if we want to work on our muscular endurance, we'll do sets of 20. Like they don't, they don't see the issue because they don't have that background or that base of knowledge to go with. And somebody that's selling it to them is an expert and they've coached these champions and they've done all these things and they've been successful. So of course they're going to follow them. I mean, you know, they don't know any better and they think that's how they're going to be able to make their gym more successful. So it always comes back to the people are trying to do the best that they can. And they're just, you know, they're just not quite getting there the way that they're going, but it, it almost always comes out of good intentions. And that's what makes it, I think, hard to come in and be able to help them because you don't want them to feel like you don't think they were trying, if that makes sense. Now you kind of touched on some of these things, but what do you think are the big barriers or stigmas when it comes to like implementing strength and conditioning and just having people lift in the, in the gymnastics world? There's still some um, stigma that if you lift weights, you're going to get bulky. And of course we know that's not true. And if anything, even if you did gain two pounds, let's say you gain two pounds because that's like a reasonable guess as to what you might gain from a strength training program in a year for a female. You're gonna be so much stronger that that two pounds isn't gonna matter, you know? And you probably improved your body composition. So the chances of you like actually being larger are so small, especially if it's a training program that is designed to increase your sports performance. Like if you are actually training those power rep ranges, they're low rep ranges, you know, they're high quality movements and they are designed to help you increase your rate of force production and the amount of force you can produce. They're not aimed at hypertrophy. I mean, you might get some of that in there because you need some of that work to be able to continue to produce more force. But wouldn't you say that doing sets of 20 on plyometrics is more likely to induce hypertrophy than doing 
sets of three on a power exercise, you know, like it's like people don't understand how muscle growth works. And so they just automatically assume that if we add external resistance to something, we're going to suddenly start growing these big, like macho man muscles. And I know people on the podcast can't literally see me, but I've been lifting for almost 12 years now. And I am tiny. Like my first four years of it was purely for sports performance. I had no real inclination to try and get bigger or do um, like hypertrophy type work. I was just trying to jump higher for track. And and then I went and actually became a bodybuilder. And let me tell you, it's hard to build that muscle. Like it's not easy. It's not just going to happen on accident. If you are not trying to bulk up, it's not going to happen. So I think that's a big reason that um, people don't want to bring strength training in is because they think that those tiny girls that are supposed to be so tiny and kind of have that like childlike undeveloped look is what they want. You know, you don't want curves in gymnastics. That's always been something that is just kind of um, frowned upon, even though it literally doesn't matter. (laughs) It shouldn't. that's, they don't want to see those things and they don't want to see them gain weight and they don't want to see them get bigger. And one thing that I think people forget is that the age of the athlete, they are going to go through puberty at some point during their gymnastics career and they have to gain weight. That is normal. That is part of development. And if they don't, that's bad. Like that has long-term implications that are going to affect them for the rest of their life. And they them gaining that weight is actually not going to affect their sports performance if you just help them get strong enough to move the same weight. You know, so if you use that resistance training wisely, you're going to help them perform better and have less of those issues in that puberty phase when they finally have a growth spurt and they gain some weight, normal weight that they need to gain. If they're strong enough to still move their body, they're going to keep moving well. It's when they didn't have that resistance training and suddenly they've gained weight that they're going to start struggling through that phase. So I think if we can get that through to people that it's going to help them get through the awkward phase more quickly and without having to take so much time relearning things or getting used to their body again. I think that would be a good way to um, like sell it to them. If that makes sense, like the stronger you are, the faster we get through this, the more we keep doing these skills, even though, you know, you're doing them at a different body size or a different height or a different, whatever it is that you have now. And I know that we, we've kind of talked about this before, like definitely in the dance world, there's a very big, um, I guess, stigma or, or fear when it comes to not having your costume fit the same way or not having the same lines. Is that that same thing that you is, sorry, words, is that something <laughs> that you see in gymnastics as well? Like, is it is it a fear that you're not going to look quite the same way? Like, I guess, does it have that same aesthetic appeal that dance does? I think it does and it doesn't. The thing about gymnastics is it's not as rigid in the artistry um, as a whole sport. Now, certain gyms might have their style or, you know, look for a certain style, but ballet is ballet and it's supposed to look a certain way. Gymnastics, you can do whatever suits your body type as far as your choreography goes. And so as long as you are open to changing those things and adjusting those things and seeing it as Um, maybe a challenge to your performance in that it's something new you can do and learn rather than like, oh, this is a bad thing that's happening to me. I think that that is a good way to combat it because you don't have to do ballet floor routines. Like you can, if that suits you, that suited me. 
Um, but some of the kids I coach have a totally different body type than me and it wouldn't look as good on them. That doesn't mean that they should be forced into it just because it's what I like. You know, um, I can find other ways to choreograph for them or have someone else do it that's better at a different style. And then it's going to suit that kid and they're going to feel more confident and more comfortable doing it and have more fun with it than if they're like trying to make themselves fit this mold that they just don't fit. Um, and I think personality goes into that a lot too with choreography styles, but it's definitely something that I think, I think kids worry about it. And I think with social media that makes a big difference because that's something that I didn't really have to worry about growing up. But I think the way coaches and parents, especially moms who are big fad dieters and constantly on diet, I think the way that those people that they surround themselves with as their role models present these things makes a huge difference. Like I grew up with a mom who was never on a diet. I didn't go home and see diet stuff. You know, I didn't hear my mom talk about losing weight. I didn't hear her talk badly about her body. She wasn't always trying to lose weight as I was growing up. She never picked on me about, hey, you should lose weight or you should whatever. But I had teammates whose moms were that way, who they were constantly talking about losing weight and these kinds of things. And so their kids pick up on that. And then they hear anything. They take it out of context, even at the gym about how we need to make sure we're not too heavy because we might get more injuries that way. And they suddenly apply that to themselves, even if it didn't need to be applied to themselves, you know, and then they're like, Oh, I should stop eating or I shouldn't eat as much. And so I think if you can help them see that there are a lot of different body types and that all of them are fine, you know, everyone's different and however you are built and however you look has an advantage. You just need to find what it is. And that food is actually a thing that will fuel your performance and help you do your sport better rather than hinder your performance, you know, as a thing that you should avoid. And then coaches being careful what they say around their gymnast. I know new year's comes around every year and you'll have just like everybody in the world, you know, people start talking about their diets and what diets are going to start on new year's. So don't say that in front of the kids you coach. Don't make them feel like, Oh, should I be on a diet? Should I be thinking about this? Do I need to lose weight because it's new year's? Like don't let them hear you say that even if it's something you want for yourself. And I think that would go, a long way because ultimately kids know what they see and what they hear. And if what they see and what they hear is everyone around them on a diet, that's what they're going to think they're supposed to do. Danielle, do you have any similarities that you've seen like in the, the dance world to what Christina just talked about? I think the new year's thing rings true because we always get told, well, I was told multiple times when you go away for Christmas break, like, make sure like you can, you can splurge a little bit, but you know, make sure you're back in shape by the time you come back. Cause then you're just going to be off your game and you'll be delayed for the next show or performance. So I, I think that holds true. Or when you go away for summer, they're like, make sure when you come back in the fall, like you're ready to go. Right. Like we have casting coming up right when you get back or like, I guess it would be comparable to leveling up in gymnastics. Right. So it's, it's pretty similar. I think what you said about dance being a little bit more stringent is, is true. Cause I've seen varieties of body shapes at the gym that I work at, but they're all still very lean. You know, it's not like they're still in a leotard, you know, and dance like dancers and gymnasts will only be comfortable, you know, to the extent that they want to be. So, yeah. Well, I think, um, like you mentioned, they get maybe told, Hey, don't do this. Don't gain weight. Don't, or come back ready to go. But no one tells them how, 
or and then when they do go look for how all they see is this like fitspo stuff on the internet where people aren't eating a lot of calories but they're not doing a sport that they practice for 30 hours a week they don't need the same nutrition and half the time those people don't know what they're talking about to begin with but they don't understand what they're supposed to look for they don't know how to fuel their bodies no one ever taught them so i think that's another area where um gyms would do well to get outside help um there's plenty of pediatric sports dietitians like registered dietitians out there and i know some that specialize in gymnastics and performance sports and if you could partner up with someone like that and help your kids understand what they're supposed to do you know I think that they would be better equipped to navigate the things that they are constantly seeing and saying, oh, this would be good for me and this wouldn't. Like they know I'm supposed to eat because I have a sport to do and I have to fuel myself rather than, oh, I can only have, you know, a piece of fruit for dinner because that's what this diet said. We were, we were just talking about that that earlier because the contrast between like wrestling and and dance as far as like, weight classes and eating and we see it in powerlifting too but i think any any sport that you undergo where there is like pressure to either maintain a weight or maintain a look that's something that you definitely struggle with um and i feel like especially i'm sure it probably happens with male gymnasts as well because we see a lot with wrestlers you know where a lot of times i think that from the looking on the outside in People think, oh, just because it's a, a male athlete that they may not have an eating disorder or they may not have, like, you know, poor self-image or body dysmorphia or whatever it is. But that in sports like gymnastics, in sports like wrestling, just because you're a male athlete doesn't mean they don't have similar pressures. So I would say um, two things based on what you said. One usually if you are fueling yourself correctly, your body composition is going to improve. Um, you know, your body is going to kind of be willing to work with you a little bit more rather than kind of fighting you on that stuff. But I think with the male gymnast, they tend to be a little bit older. Um, men's gymnastics is not a sport where they're done by 18. Like women's usually is most of them will continue, be able to continue on well into their twenties and, even some into their 30s, and that's normal. That's not like an exception. That's like what you expect out of a a male gymnast. But they do have, I think, less pressure on them to be small. I think what they look for in that sport is more muscularity. They look for um, these different things. It's not a sport where they celebrated tiny little feminine childlike figures for so long in the sport, they always wanted displays of strength. They always wanted um, power and some of these things that didn't come in gymnastics until like the 80s um, or even the early 90s for the women. And so I think, I don't want to say there's no male gymnasts that have eating disorders or problems with that, but I think as a whole, they probably don't have the same pressure on them and they are typically taught just as male athletes in general to eat more like most male athletes are taught to eat and gain weight. And, you know, it's just a totally different way of looking at food for, I think most male athletes in any sport, but I think gymnastics, even um, they probably still have more of that influence than the same as what the women's side gets where it's kind of like stay tiny as long as you can. What are, what are bad recommendations that you, you hear in your profession or areas of expertise? Ooh, 
don't eat carbs. <laughs> I hear that one a lot. And almost always with a sport that is like mostly anaerobic, you know, that those carbohydrates are going to be the main source of fuel and they're taking them away. I would say that more is always better because I get that one a lot. I think a lot of people think that to get better, you just have to do more constantly rather than take a step back and look at the other areas of performance, the things that I kind of mentioned earlier with like sleep and recovery. And can you improve your nutrition from a standpoint of fueling yourself better, whether that's through micronutrients or eating more or whatever it may be and your mentality towards a lot of things. I think that we didn't talk about it much, but I think that's something that could help a lot of people. Don't do plyos. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Do plyos, <laughs> but don't use them as like a high volume, the only source of strength you get for your lower body warm up activity. Like you've got to know how to use them to actually improve the things that you think you're improving. Like if you do 300 plyometric exercises and then you go try and do practice, what did you just help? Did you make yourself more explosive? Probably not. You probably set yourself up for injury and you didn't actually achieve any of those adaptations that you thought you were trying to achieve there. So those are probably the biggest three that I see with gymnastics stuff. Christina, well, we can't thank you enough for having, uh, for taking the time to be on our show. And if anyone listening wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way that they can do that? Um, I have two Instagram accounts. I have one that is dedicated almost entirely to gymnastics stuff, and it is at LHP underscore gymnastics underscore strength underscore. And then my normal IG that is um, mostly powerlifting and just general strength and conditioning is lift heavy princess. And there is an underscore in between lift and heavy and heavy and princess. And then also you can email me at any time. And that's Christina at liftheavyprincess.com. If you've got questions or if I can help point you in the right direction of more resources or different things for gymnastics or powerlifting, I would be more than happy to do so. Is there a story behind Lift Heavy Princess? Like, real quick. I really like the song Punk Rock Princess by Something Corporate, and it is a play on that. And the fact that someone said that to me um, when I first got into powerlifting, this, like, sarcastic comment somebody made in a gym. And so it just kind of stuck for all these years and became a business name out of that. Um, and if you would like to reach out to us directly, Jake, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at TMD underscore the movement docs on Instagram. It's where I write all my low quality rehab memes. <laughs> Not low quality. And I am, um, my Instagram handle is Danielle Anise underscore DPT. So it looks like Danielle Anise underscore DPT. Thanks again, everyone for tuning in with us where we got to speak to Christina Myers. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or have a topic that you'd like us to discuss, please shoot us an email at dbalpodcast at gmail.com. And again, thank you and don't break a leg.